Okay, so here we are with our next episode, our next installment. I believe this is episode four in our series, Finding Other Worlds. So this is a commentary on the Chronicles of Narnia. And we're going through the entire series, so... So far we've been through The Magician's Nephew, we've also had the introduction, so you can go back and listen to those, and today we begin The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. So we're in for a very special treat. There is something special about this book, there is something very, I dare say, magical about it. It's probably... Also the most famous book, the most popular book. So, I'd like to read the dedication that is written in the front of this book. And he writes, My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realised that grow." that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already far too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday, you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear too old to understand a word of what you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather. C.S. Lewis. And I think there's a wisdom in that. There is something that Lewis is pointing out which shows his understanding of the arc of life. The way life has its sort of unfoldings and also a way of coming full circle. Because, in fact, quite quickly, at quite a young age, you grow out of children's books. You grow out of these stories. Now, I have a, I have a niece and she's probably quite a few years past Narnia. Now, she's 11 Right? And granted, well, she does read a lot. She is a bit of a bookworm. So maybe she grows out of those stories quicker than some. But she's 11 and she's already grown out of these sort of fairy tales. She's grown out of the story of Narnia and gone on to other things. And there is quite a long period, isn't there, between this moment of growing out of fairy tales and the moment when you pick them up again. It's quite a long period, such a long period, that I'd say, well, it's about about the time from when you were a kid to the time when you have kids of your own, right? That's when most adults pick up fairy tales again, is when they're reading them to their kids. And that moment that rekindling of an interest in children's stories 
really coincides with an understanding that the stories of the past have a meaning now which is very different to what they meant when you first read them. It's a new kind of maturity. It's a new kind of lens because you realize you've been through a large portion of your life. You've experienced the world. You've experienced things. You have a lot more life experience in all sorts of ways. And that moment, well, it really... I guess I could say (laughs) it's a moment of coming into old age (laughs) or a moment of really coming into adulthood, if not old age. But that's what we're doing here also. That's what's happening when you actually, and, and well, explicitly, now that we understand this, you can even just go ahead and do it for yourself, right? Like it's not that you have to wait for a moment. You don't have to wait to have kids to read children's stories. Now that we're making it explicit here in this conversation, you can actually say, well, okay, how do I do this now? How do I do this sooner? How do I mature sooner? How do I find my wisdom sooner? And the answer is, well, you turn to those old stories. You turn to those things that were in your childhood, and not just the stories, but the personal narrative as well. And you see, well, how is it now? How is it with this different perspective? How can I bring this into a new perspective for wisdom, for understanding myself, for knowledge of the reality of the dream that we find ourselves in. So, this story begins, just like the magician's nephew, with these four children, Lucy, Edmund, Peter, Susan being moved away from their home. So their world has changed. They've gone to a new world. and They've gone to live with one of their eccentric relatives who lives in a big house in the country, off in some distant land. Now, the reason they have to do this is because there are air raids in the wars, in the war. And the... Enemies of the Allies are dropping bombs, possibly, on London. So they're carted away for safety. Now, the statement there is that if we can say where we're at in this part of the story, to a child, a different country is another world. Then it's the coming of other worlds to their home world that causes chaos, that causes disorder, that causes disruption. And it's when these two worlds meet or have a sort of interaction, we could say, with each other, that that chaos ensues. So a far-off distant land, another country, is now coming to war with their country. 
And therefore, they have to leave their country. They have to leave their home and go off to another country. So already we have multiple worlds. Already we have multiple things that are just beyond what they can understand. It's not like these children know anything about the war. It's not like they can imagine what it's like to live in the distant countries of where these machines of war come from. So already we see that. Now, they move to this house and basically, well, they're kids. They look around, they play around, they play hide and seek, they explore things and some days it's rainy so they have to stay inside and we've got this thing in Edmund which is you know sometimes he's tired but he pretends not to be and he's a little bit of a a snarly sort of character he's a bit he's a bit tricky he's a bit he's a bit bitter at times and really Edmund is a key character in this story, as we'll find out as we go along. And one day, well, Lucy is sort of looking around this house, this big old house, and she comes across this room, and she goes in, and there's a wardrobe there. And, well, she decides to take a look inside, and she opens the door, goes in, and she strangely, like magic, somehow manages to topple out into a new world. And it's very different. It's snowing. She's cold. It's a different time of day. And she sort of just thinks, well, how strange. And she looks around and she walks around and she's in this world and, well, she meets a fawn. And this fawn is, well, it's Mr. Tubness. Mr. Tumness, the fawn. And as they're talking, well, at first, of course, the fawn is quite surprised that he's met Lucy. And she's also quite surprised. And they're sort of talking and sort of trying to work out, well, you know, who are you? Where are you going from? And one of the things that really strikes Mr. Tumness, the fawn, is that Lucy is a human. And of course, even this is strange to Lucy as well. It's so shocking. It's the it's the shock that what you are could be so so obviously and so immediately strange to someone else. And that's a key moment of finding new places, meeting new people. It's that the very the very thing you are in an instant, it's not that it's not that they've been talking for some time and some interesting fact has come out about Lucy. It's that it's right there and it's the very one of the very first things that they actually figure out. And it's not it's not just a fact about Lucy, it's a it's a deep fundamental core thing, right? She is a human being. That encompasses so much of what she is, all of what she is, in some ways. Or at least in how we're talking about it now, it can be put that way. So that's an interesting shock. And they get talking and, well, 
they decide, the fawn decides to invite Lucy back for some tea. And she goes back and it's very nice and he meets his home and it's very cosy and they have tea. And she notices one of the books on the shelf, which is titled, Is Man a Myth? And this is a very, this is a very interesting detail. This is a very interesting prop that has been inserted by Lewis into this story. And it really does turn things on its head because this whole idea of the myth, right? The myth, the mythological story is something that, well, is central to what we're working with in this story. It's the kid's story. And it also ties in with, well, what C.S. Lewis was saying about Christianity and what he believed in relation to Christianity. Now, the way I like to talk about myths, or the way I like to understand the myth, is how Osho spoke about it. And what Osho said about the myth, and of course this isn't just only Osho's idea, this is a common idea, it's just that I heard it from Osho. And the way he explains it is that the myth is something of a truth and also something of a lie. It's not exactly the truth. And that's how we have these mythological stories. That's why we have these stories. And the reason we have them is because, well, the truth, the truth is too much. The truth is not quite clear. The truth is illusory because of who we are, because of how we are, because of what we find ourselves within. And to bridge the truth, to come into truth, well, there has to be some sort of process or way or methodology or understanding or something, something that will bridge truth and non-truth, the truth and the lie. And that is the myth when we're talking about narratives when we're talking about stories. So we call stories and narratives a myth when it is pertaining to the truth and it holds a kind of truth, but also is not the truth. And that's an important thing to understand. Now, in this case, we're now in this world and this book title is is man a myth? And just what does that mean exactly to say that man is a myth? And it's asked in a sort of philosophical question, right? To have a question as a title of a book is to say, well, this is a bit edging on the side of philosophy. And I think as we can say from what we've established about the myth that a man is something that contains the truth 
but also not quite the truth. There is a lie within him. There is something that is untrue within him. And of course I say him as in just generically, it's men and women. And I'm sure that's what this book title has meant. I'm sure this is what C.S. Lewis has meant. So within each of us, there are things of the truth. There are qualities of the truth. There are essences of truth. And ultimately, there is truth. The truth is within. The truth is there. The truth simply is. And yet also there is the lie. And perhaps an even further parallel to make was that, well, man is a story. Man is a narrative. Very much like the myth. So in my mind, this idea of the myth and man is very much the same. And in that case, you can say this book title, Is Man a Myth?, could be, is man a man? Is a myth a myth? Right? So imagine imagine those two books on the shelf sitting next to each other. Is man a man? Well, you say, well, what does it really mean to be a man? And we can say human instead of man. Is human a human? And then you think, well, what does, it, what does it really mean to be human? What are the qualities that we're going to say? And you can see that, well, actually some of the time, many of the time, I'm sure you can think of the examples when a human being has done something inhuman, something that is against their humanity. Yeah, you can think of those examples you can think of something so so terrible or so great that it's somehow beyond humanity, the humanity that is in the person doing that thing. Now, it's both great things and terrible things, good things and bad things that fit that category. And then as for the myth, is myth a myth? Well, what would that what would that look like as a book? What would that book be about? Well, that would illustrate clearly this thing that the myth holds something of the truth and also something of the lies, something of the untruth. Is myth are myths myths? That would be the title of the book. And just in that you get that sense of well, what does a myth mean? And you can see that, well, myths are myths. They are myths in the sense that they're made up. They're just stories. I mean, that's what this story is. This is what the book of Narnia is. This is what the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is. It's a, it's a myth. It's a story. It's just made up. Some guy has written it for some children. But also, is it a myth in the sense of it being a narrative that reveals a deeper truth. So that's a little bit of philosophical jousting that comes from this one prop in the cosy living room of Mr. Tumnus the Fawn, who's having tea with Lucy. Now, after some time, 
The fawn plays some flute, but he actually starts crying. He starts sobbing. And Lucy's like, wait, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? What is the problem? Why are you crying? And he's saying, oh, I'm a terrible fawn. Oh, I've done such a terrible thing. And she's thinking, now what on earth is going on? You've been so nice, so kind, invited me to tea, been so cosy, played me some sweet music on your flute, and you're feeling all this guilt. And the fawn explains that, well, he'd thought that he could give Lucy up to the evil white witch. He thought that he might actually betray her because the witch wants to capture any humans that come to Narnia. And even just thinking about this, even just having it as an idea in his mind, has been enough for this fawn to feel guilty, with guilt and just upset from that feeling. Now, he hasn't even done anything at this stage. He hasn't even made up his mind at this stage. And yet he feels that guilt. So she says, well, you haven't done anything yet. Let me just go home. And he says, okay. So he lets her go home. Now, Lucy comes back from this wardrobe, from this world beyond the wardrobe. And she comes back and, of course, she's like, hey, hey, I'm back. Did you miss me? Here I am. Don't worry, I'm here. And the other kids, Edmund, Luce, uh, Edmund Susan and Peter, are just like, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? You were here just a moment ago. And then she launches off into her story. She says, no, I was in this magical land. It was snowing and then there's this fawn that, gave me tea and I was talking to him and I was looking at some of the philosophy books on the shelf and we had this long elaborate conversation about what a myth means and what man is and what humanity is and what truth is. And her siblings are just thinking, well, like, what on earth are you talking about? They have no idea about it. They have no idea what's going on. They have absolutely no understanding of this experience that Lucy has been through. So, as the days go by, well, as it happens, Edmund stumbles upon this wardrobe and he finds his way into this magic world of Narnia. And who he meets when he's in there is someone actually very different to Mr. Tumnus the Fawn. Because Edmund meets the White Witch and she's on her sled with her dwarf driving the way. And just like Lucy experienced, well, the witch was taken aback as to what is Edmund like what what is him what what are you and he's sort of she's sort of standing there saying what are you are you some 
great overgrown dwarf that has plucked out its beard. And, well, Edmunds comes to say that, well, I'm a boy. I'm a human. And this is the same shock that the witch has that Mr. Tomnus the Fawn had. And, of course, the witch is sort of, at first, being quite cruel to Edmund. But once she finds out that he's a man, he's a human, well, her whole tone changes and she sort of coerces him. She sort of takes him on and says, now come and have some food. And she feeds him some Turkish delight and this magic warm drink. And this food, well, it actually is in some ways a little bit addictive and it's like he's really wanting more and more of it. And the witch finds out all about Edmund and his brothers and sisters and she sort of is in two minds but in the end decides to let Edmund go back on the condition that he will bring the brothers and sisters again to Narnia to meet him. And by this time, Edmund is really well and truly addicted to this food, this Turkish delight that she's been feeding him. And she says, no, you won't have any more until you bring them. So this idea of addicting someone to something in order to manipulate them into doing your will, well, that's a pretty dark thing to do, isn't it? That's a pretty evil sort of way to be relating to people. So Edmund then meets up with Lucy, and she's like, oh, wow, she's all excited, right? Because Edmund's got into this magic world as well. But he realises that, well, he's going to have to admit that he was wrong. And this is pretty rough for Edmund because he'd even been quite quite bitter and quite jeering towards Lucy about her stories of the other world. And Lucy is sort of like, are you you okay? You look really awful. And of course, Edmund is feeling awful because he's eaten too much Turkish delight. But he says he's okay. And there's something in that too. That's something that's come up before, remember, because he's been tired but said he's not tired and now he's awful but he says he's okay. So Edmund and Lucy go back and Lucy is sort of like, okay, now let's tell Susan and Peter about the other world. And in that moment when Lucy's like, okay, tell them, tell them about the other world, Edmund lets her down. He says, oh, yes, I've been pretending to play along with this story. I've been pretending to uh, know about Lucy's world when really there's nothing to it. And of course, this is so upsetting to Lucy. This is just devastating because to her, she just wants people to know about this magical world. And she was sure that having someone who knew about it as well would be enough for her brother and sister to understand 
to learn about it, to see her side of the story. But that person, that Edmund, let her down. Now, by this stage, Peter and Susan, they're starting to get quite worried about Lucy because she's either queer in the head, as they say, or she's a liar. So it's so serious that Peter and Susan decide to go and talk to the professor themselves. And they go into his office and they sit down and Peter tries to explain to the professor what's wrong with Lucy. And of course the professor, well, he listens. He listens very carefully. He doesn't interrupt and he doesn't judge. And once Peter has said all that he can think to say about the situation, well, the professor starts to inquire. Well, how do you know the story isn't true, he says. And Peter is sort of shaken. He's like, well, hang on, what, what are you talking about? How can, how can you say that a story isn't true? How do you know the story? How, how can you start with the premise that the story isn't true? How can you be trying to prove that the story isn't true? And in this is a very important insight. In this is a very profound thing to understand because this whole difference between starting, assuming that nothing is true and the difference between starting assuming that everything is true can lead you in totally different directions of paradigm navigations, of perspectives of life, of finding truth, of finding new realities, of really, (laughs) ultimately, of finding new worlds. (laughs) And don't underestimate this because this is so powerful. And it seeps into so much. And really, you need to be able to see this so clearly that you see both of them. And it's a nuance which is hard to... It's it's a nuance which is really hard to appreciate because there's so much depth to it. Essentially... Everyone does, when talking about perspectives, fall into these two sort of camps. Is the story true? Are we trying to prove the story true? Or are we trying to prove the story wrong? And to have both, to see that, is really the answer. And... If you start with, well, well, let's let's take a look at this. If you start with, no, everything is not true unless it's proven true. Well, then you still have you still have an edge to your world. You still have a boundary to your world. You're still drawing a line between what is real and what is not real. 
And that's going to determine what sort of evidence you have. Like what is sufficient for evidence in that case? You can say, well, nothing's true until it's proven true. But then you can just say, well, what is proof? And then whatever you give as that answer, you can say, well, how are you going to uphold that? Are there any exceptions to the rule? And you find very quickly that there's this, there's this never-ending, sort of ever-receding line of what is truth, what is proof, what is real, what is not real. And the flavor of that, the things that you're going to find within that paradigm, is very different to whether you start with the assumption that, well, everything is true. How do you know it isn't true? Let's try and prove anything to be not true to find it as not true. And from where I sit here, it seems like the assumption that everything is true is much more open. I get the feeling that this professor is very open-minded. And of course, we know he's very experienced. So he's got that on his side. But the children don't know the professor's experience. They don't know what his perspective is. It's simply that he's saying a few words and his perspective is being impressed upon them. So when he says to Peter, how do you know the story isn't true? Peter is he's, he's shocked, right? He's like, it, it, he can't say anything. It's this, it's this hit in the face for him because it's this, the, this insight which comes from this gargantuan perspective, gargantuan open perspective that the professor has, and it's come out of that into Peter's tiny, childish, ignorant worldview. And that's why there's so much shock. And the professor continues. He says, well, who's normally more reliable, Lucy or Edmund? And Peter thinks, well, you know, Lucy never lies. He's always understandable. And Ed- Edmund, well, he's actually been a bit, you know, he's actually been a bit ratty recently. And he's been a bit snide. He actually would be the sort of person who would lie. So the professor is saying, well, this is basic logic, right? It's very simple. Either Lucy is lying or she's mad or she's telling the truth. Right? So there's three options. If we want to deduce this into logic, there's three options. Lying, crazy, or truth. Now, she normally doesn't lie, so that's out of character. So we can cross that off the list. And she isn't mad because, well, even the professor can see that. And of course, when you really look at her, you can see that she's not mad. She's just a kid, really. There's nothing wrong with her. Of course, she gets upset, but she's not, she's not insane. Which leaves the third option, which is, well, she's telling the truth. And Peter says, well, hang on just a minute. If things are real, aren't they real all the time? Because we went to the cupboard and knocked on the back of the door and it was just a cupboard. And the teacher says, well, or the professor says, well, is that always the case? Are things always there? 
And Peter sort of thinks for a bit and he thinks, well, no, there are certain things that aren't always there, which yet are true. So this meeting with the professor sort of ends with the professor saying something like, oh, what do they teach at these schools? And that comment also says a lot because the whole issue is how do these kids figure out what's the truth of the matter between them? How do they know what's going on? And how do they relate to each other, right? Because it's affecting their relationships. Lucy is really upset by this. Peter is really worried about her, right? These sort of emotional complexes that are between the children, that's why they need to get to the truth of the matter. And the professor is saying, well, what do they teach at these schools? Like they haven't taught him basic logic, right? Because from the professor's side, you can just use basic logic to do this. And logic can be the tool, the mechanism, which can be applied to the situation, like a meta-principle, to figure it out, right? And that's what, well, the professor wishes they would teach these kids at the school. And the truth is, well, at school you're not going to learn those deeper things. The professor is not the kind of teacher that the children have at school. He's of a different quality. He's got different experiences. He's got a much larger perspective. And you can see that just in how easily he's been able to sort this out for the children in a way. And it's not, it's not sorted out in the sense that they thought it would be, right? So Susan and Peter would have gone into this professor's office thinking, okay, so he's going to say, yeah, she's lying, but you should say certain things to her or something like this, right? When really, Peter and Susan have had to have their perspective changed. They've had to learn something. They've had to figure out how to learn something for themselves as well. So that's this meeting with the professor. And a few days later, (laughs) you know what happens. (laughs) They're playing hide-and-seek. Well, actually, no, that's not what's happening. Some guests come to the house... And the kids want to hide from them because they don't want to they don't want to talk to them, you know. Did you ever have that as a kid? Some guests came over and you just want to hide to them hide from them. I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> so anyway, the visitors turn up and the kids all hide in the wardrobe. And as it turns out, well, they find Narnia. And this time, all four of them are in. And now it's all out, right? Edmund has to let up that he's been there. 
And he has this sort of comment about how, oh, shouldn't we be back towards the lamppost? Shouldn't we go in that direction? Right? Because there's this lamppost right near where the wardrobe opens up to Narnia. And that's sort of how Edmund and Lucy have found their ways by orientating themselves on this lamppost, which seems to sort of be growing in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And once it comes out, well, Peter's like, so you knew. You knew about Narnia, and yet you didn't back up Lucy. So Edmund's treachery came to light and Peter held it against him. And this just makes Edmund even more bitter. He's just thinking, oh, you're just so against me. And this thing in Edmund, this is really important to understand. He's really he's really starting to brood. He's really starting to hold this sort of bitterness within him. So anyway, Lucy is like, let's go see Mr. Tumnus, the fawn. And they think, okay, that's a good idea. And they turn up at his house. And what they find is that his house has been slashed. The door's broken off its hinges. It's all cold inside. And Mr. Tumnus isn't there. And at the door, or I don't think it's at the door because it's somewhere else. I think they've nailed it to somewhere with a, I think in the movie it's hit to the door with the knife and in the book it's hit to the floor. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They find a note. They find a note which explains what happens. And it explains that, well, Mr. Tumnus the Fawn has been arrested by the secret police. And he's been taken away to the witch. And for what reason? For, well, for treason. For aiding and abetting a human and allowing them to escape the grasp of the witch. So Lucy, well, feels pretty upset. She feels pretty upset about this, right? And... For one moment, they're like, well, let's just go home. We don't have anything to do with this. But Lucy is thinking, no, we can't go because it's because of her that he's in prison. It's her fault in a sense because he's, she's turned up and caused this problem. So they decide to go on and they actually come across this bird, a robin, which they decide to follow. And there's this sort of cutaway comment about Edmund asking Peter if actually, well, maybe the Queen is on the good side. Maybe actually they've got it the wrong way around. And this is this is one of the things to understand about other worlds is that two people can be in the same world and yet they have completely different experiences of it. That's what's happening here with Edmund. This is why he's saying, well, how do you know we haven't got the wrong side? How do you know it's not the queen that is the good side and Mr. Tumnus the fawn was the evil one? Maybe he should be in prison for what he's done. 
Now, of course, Edmund isn't thinking this through very much, but it just goes to show that people can have different experiences of the same place. So the kids meet up with Mr. Beaver and they feel they can trust Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver takes them into his cozy place and they have some food and they have some dinner. And Mr. Beaver tells them about Aslan. And as the name Aslan is mentioned, well, the children all feel something. Just the name itself is enough to stir something inside them. And they also learn more about the witch and how the witch can actually turn people into stone. And Edmund has this sort of comment about, well, can't the witch turn Aslan into the stone? And the beaver's response is sort of like, ha, you have no idea, right? If the witch could even just stand on her two feet and look him in the eyes, that would be all that she could do to that great godlike figure sort of thing. So they plan to meet Aslan and there are more discussions about the witch who isn't human and the beaver's comment is that, well, there may be two views about human but there's no two views about the things that look like humans that aren't. And he says that there's a lot of danger in something that used to be human or something that is about to become human and isn't quite yet. And this gets back at, well, what does it mean to be human? Right? Just like Lucy looking at the philosophy books on the shelf of Mr. Tumnus the Fawn, well, now in the cosy house of the beaver, the beavers, the beaver and his wife, the question has come up, well, what does it mean to be human? Because the children have asked, isn't the witch a human? She definitely looks a lot like a human. And he says, well, no, not quite. And something that has human qualities or appears to have human qualities and, and isn't is actually something quite dangerous. You can see that in you can see that as a as a very, very clever statement about how people behave in our world. Someone who is a human, who who is in a sense a person, but doesn't have their humanity as a part of them. Well, that's the sort of person who can do something that is inhuman. And that leaves things open to incredibly terrible things. And you can say of someone who's done terrible things that, well, they haven't understood their humanity. They haven't integrated their humanity. They're not, they're not in touch with their human side. Now, we can also move this discussion to say, well, maybe when we define humanity, we actually include the bad as well. But that's not what the image is being painted here by C.S. Lewis. That's not the definition that he's using. That's not the statement that he's making. 
So they have dinner, and after some time they realize that Edmund has gone missing. And as soon as he has, Mr. Beaver knows where he's gone. He realizes that he's gone to her. He's gone to the queen. Well, not the queen, the white witch, I should say. And they realize that he now has information about Aslan. So Edmund is going to go to the white witch and tell what he knows about Aslan, which means they have to leave the house. And as for Edmund, well, he plods off through the snow and he continues his brooding. He continues his resentment towards his fellow brothers and sisters. And he has these sorts of thoughts like, "Ah, well, the the queen will make me king and then that, that will really show them And when I'm king of Narnia, the first thing I'm going to do is make some roads. Because, of course, he's walking through the snow and he wished he had a proper road to walk on. And that that thing of, well, your own personal problems get pushed out into your own efforts towards changing the world is also actually echoed in The White Witch, right? She makes the place always winter. She casts the spell so that it's always winter and never Christmas. So that it's always cold because she is cold. She is bitter. So she's using her power to project out onto the world and to change the world into a reflection of how she is on the inside, which is bitter. And Edmund is also feeling this. He's also having this trajectory of his own personal resentments and hang-ups and brooding turning into what he imagines will be his future of, well, in a sense, in his way, setting things right. But it's really just his personal feelings, his personal situations being pushed out onto the world. So he reaches the castle, he turns up at the Queen's castle, and he walks in, and the whole place is very dark, very quiet. And he notices that there are some statues of these animals, and one of them is of this big lion. And at first he's afraid that the lion might pounce on him, but he realizes eventually that it's a statue. And when he does, he sort of begins to gloat about it. He sort of thinks, ha, 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 you can't hurt me. And he even pulls out a texture and draws a little moustache on the line just to poke fun of it, right? And yet even in that moment, there's something, there's something in Edmund that says, well, what if it came to life and, and ate you alive? And he sort of feels... he. Here's the here's the funny thing about Edmund is that he does these things which he feels bad about, right? All the things that he's been doing, he's done them and then he's felt bad about them. And he can't work out why. He can't work out what's happening. 
He can't see it in himself that really it's his behaviours that are causing him to feel bad. And this really is just leading to all the different knots, all the different problems within him. So he comes to the front door and he sees that there's a wolf statue and he goes to go in the front door, but then he realises that, well, actually, the wolf statue is not a wolf statue. It's actually a wolf. And the wolf asks him, well, what are you doing here? What have you come for? And he sort of explains, well, I'm here to meet the queen and I've got news about my brothers and sisters. And, well, he lets him in and the queen is quite bitter. She's not welcoming at all. She says, why haven't you brought your brothers and sisters? And, of course, Edmund asks for some of the Turkish delight because that's what he's been craving. And the queen just flat out says no. She has no interest in giving him that. And, in fact, she decides to feed him just dry bread and some water in a bowl. So he's quite miserable to be in the presence of the queen. And of course, he's made all that way through the snow without a coat, so he's quite cold and tired. And of course, once he tells the queen about Aslan and his brothers and sisters, well, she then sends the wolf to go and kill them. So that is quite a big blow for Edmund. And then then prepare the sled to go after them. And we then find ourselves in the situation where Edmund is stuck with this witch going through the snow to his brothers and sisters who are being attacked, as far as he knows, by this wolf, this vicious wolf. And it's all his fault. So Edmund is not in a good way. He's really he's really taking the full brunt of his course of actions. And he's not being fed, he's overtired. And probably the worst of it all is that it's well, it's all his fault that this evil witch is having her way with these people, with his brothers and sisters. So there's a coming doom for Edmund, and it seems like things are only going to get worse, and he can't see any way out at all. So, as it happens, they do manage to escape and run away before the wolf turns up at the beaver house. And I think probably we'll have to leave 
our discussion there for a moment. We'll have to see what happens in the next episode. So we'll leave it there for today and to find out what happens and, of course, to have more discussions on the meanings of the different ins and outs of this story, well, you'll have to tune in to the next episode. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back very soon with the rest of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's all I have to say for now.